What got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney David Heinemeyer Hansen is the creator of Ruby on Rails founder and CTO at Basecamp formerly 37 Signals New York Times best-selling author of Rework and Remote and Lamont class-winning race car driver what does someone learn to be one of the best in the world across so many different industries? Find out on this episode with one of the world's most accomplished learners. Here we are, the 100th episode of the What Got You There podcast. I just wanted to take a few brief moments and thank you guys, the loyal listeners. You've been so tremendous over this last year and a half and over these past 99 episodes. I can't thank you enough. We are now being listened to in 54 countries. So the growth of the podcast, the reach is all because of you guys. So I can't thank you enough. This 100th episode is a special one. This is always a, a cool milestone to get to. So the guest today I think is really the epitome of what this podcast is all about and lifelong learning and learning from some of those around us. And David Heinemeyer Hansen, otherwise known as DHH, he does that across so many different disciplines. So I think you guys are really going to enjoy this episode. Once again, I just thank you for taking your time and listening to the podcast. Hopefully you guys are enjoying it. We're going to continue to have on some incredible guests in the coming future. But if you are getting a lot out of this podcast, please share it with your friends, your family. Let other people know about the What Got You There podcast. Thanks again, guys. If you're listening to this podcast, there's a good chance that your physical fitness is one of the most important aspects of your life. So why do you keep wearing those old workout shorts that are falling apart? Or even worse, when you're at the gym and something smells a little ripe? If that's the case, it's time to turn in those old shorts for a new pair of 10,000 shorts. 10,000 makes it super simple to purchase your new favorite workout apparel. My new favorite short is their distance short, which is super comfortable, lightweight, and perfect for all of my fitness goals. I can say without a doubt that 10,000 shorts are the most comfortable workout shorts I've ever worn. Like myself, 10,000 is obsessed with nailing the fit with the highest quality materials and construction. For the listeners of What Got You There, 10,000 is offering 20% off your first order of shorts. Yes, that's 20% off. This is just in time to purchase the perfect holiday gift for your loved one or even treat yourself to a new wardrobe for the New Year's goals. 10,000 makes three types of shorts for every way you train. The interval short that's built for versatility and mobility and perfect if you're into a bit of everything. It comes with an optional built-in liner that's the perfect compression without being too tight. It's made from super fine Italian fabrics. Ooh, fancy. So it's not just functional, but more comfortable without losing any support. And you need that support. The foundation short that's built for durability and perfect for anything with barbells, strength training, or even a weekend adventure. The distance short, my personal favorite, it's a super lightweight short, breathable and built for running. Also with a built-in liner, these shorts fade away while you run. When you check out, make sure you request their one-in-one-out kit. They do this super cool thing when you can send in your old gear you have for recycling and you'll get 10% off your next order. Head to www.10,000.cc forward slash WGYT to receive 20% off your order. And if for some reason you don't love them, they have your back with free shipping, free exchanges, and free returns. A few months ago, my body was experiencing a ton of pain, and that's when my friend and former podcast guest, Noah Olson, turned me on to Pure Spectrum CBD. 
their CBD products have been tremendous in relieving a lot of the pain in my body. Their products are pure because everything they make is tested every time for quality, consistency, and efficiency. They're 100% organic, third-party tested. There's a 100% guarantee, and they're THC-free. If you want to receive 10% off the entire site, head to purespectrumcbd.com and enter code WGYT. That's 10% off the entire website at purespectrumcbd.com with code WGYT. For the What Got You There listeners who love to travel and want to see the world, listen up. We've teamed up with Globekick, who make it affordable to enjoy peak life experiences with like-minded people from around the world. Globekick expertly designs, curates, and scouts global adventures for you to join. Each trip lasts one week and is designed to balance their unique blend of adventure, culture immersion, and relaxation. Globekick has some epic adventures planned, such as cage diving with great white sharks in Cape Town, South Africa, dog sledding and northern light chasing in Norway, and to see the rest, head to globekick.com. If you want to travel the world with your kind of people and not break the bank, then make sure to stop at globekick.com and enter code WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. David, welcome to What Got You There. How are you today? Good. Thank you for having me. Yes. No, a lot of things I want to uncover. And since the outset of this podcast, I've had a handful of people that I would absolutely love having on. You fit the mold for that. You're one of those people I I identified. It's your ability to conquer multiple domains in vastly different fields. So I'm excited to uncover a lot of your processes. Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to share. Yeah, so I, I want to know, What's it like, the 30,000-foot view of DHH? I want to dive into what makes you tick. What's the origin story? Where are you from originally? Uh, what were you like as a kid? Sure. So I'm from Copenhagen, Denmark, and I lived there until I was 25 years old. And then I moved to the U.S. And and sort of growing up, I was, um, I was always sort of into organizing things, sort of getting a... Uh, uh, crew of people together to to make something happen whether that was my friends and i, I would we would play uh, role-playing games and i'd always be the dungeon master i'd always come up with the story and sort of um set everything up and then later on in my in my teens i started a uh, a number of gaming websites and gaming groups and and everything and it was always sort of developing these skills about how to organize people together for a common purpose and a common enjoyment um, and, and a bunch of those skills I ended up then using both to run Basecamp, the company, to run Ruby on Rails, the um, open framework that I've been involved with for, for many years. So it's kind of funny when you look back at your, your early childhood and, and see all these activities and how they end up influencing who you become and how you become. Like, what are the things that then... Um, Sounds fun to do. So I kind of I, I got a chance to pair these things. On the one hand, coordinating people into a grander purpose, but then also doing so through computers. So I got my first computer when I was six years old, um, and I just found computers fascinating. That there was such an immediacy of input to action. You could just write a program or make it do something, and there you would see the results. And I think that is just a natural human um, sort of preference or, or even enjoyment of, of having that direct interaction that y- you you do something and there's a consequence. Um, so 
those were sort of two of the two of the influences I can draw all the way back from vague memories I have of uh, being six years old or fourteen years old or or ten years old and and drawing all those things forward and seeing like here I am. 39 years old and there's a bunch of traces that go all the way so you mentioned some of the things you're currently up to when you first meet someone how do you identify yourself i most of the time either probably say business owner or programmer so i'd say that those two things in a professional context um is the simplest both uh, description but also the closest to to what I feel. Like programming as a skill and as an endeavor is, is what I strive to spend the majority of my time doing. And then uh, running and operating the business together with Jason Freed is um, is probably my my second most uh, important task. So it's kind of like depending on the context, but there's, there's a bunch of context, right? Like people aren't just this one thing. I'm not just a programmer. I go to, to a racetrack and I, and I'm a, as they call gentleman driver, um, or, or I go somewhere else and, and I'm a photographer or I, uh, go somewhere else and, and I'm a parent. Like we play all these different roles and have all these different identities. And I think that that's actually healthy to have a multitude of, not really masks, but identities of, of different things that you are. And and one of the reasons I cherish having those things is because I have this very clear internalized sense that any of those identities could fall away. Like I could stop being a business owner if the business goes out of business. Um, and if I've invested my entire identity into just that one thing, oh, I'm a business owner. And then we go belly up. Well, it's also my identity that goes belly up. And I don't think that that's a healthy sort of relationship to, to any of the endeavors you pursue to define yourself in just one context. And I get that for some people, perhaps that's not even a choice. And that's just what they're settled with. But I've had the good fortune of basing my whole persona on multiple identities and, and therefore managing the risk that is the any of those identities could could take a hit and they could fall away. For example, for the past ten plus years, I've thought of myself um, as as a part time racing driver, as a, as an amateur racing driver. And now I'm coming into uh, a new phase where I'm I probably going to take next year off. I'm not really going to drive in any professional races next year. We'll see maybe a few things, but not at the level that I had been doing. If I had invested all of my personal identity into this oh i'm just a race car driver right like this is just what i do this is a hobby and, and this is what it's all geared towards when that then comes to an end what would i be left with i love your perspective on this and i want to know where's your desire to be self-sufficient how does that lead to you conquering these these multitude of skills yeah that's a that's a good question i, I certainly have a strive for self-sufficiency in, in all sorts of domains, both in programming or the business or, or in hobbies. And I've just found that it's tied up to uh, independence. So self-sufficiency is the skill that allows you to, to do the things you want to do when you want to do them without asking permission. And that is my preferred mode of operation. <laughs> um, whether it comes to building my own 
um, open source framework because that's how I wanted to use Ruby and and I wanted to develop applications in this very particular way, or it's setting up the business with Jason in such a way that we don't answer to anyone but ourselves. Well, I mean, in part, we answer to our employees and we answer to our customers, but we answer to, say, investors or owners or, or other bosses in the sort of chain of command. We get to do the work and write the things we want to write um, without feeling that, oh, well, maybe someone higher up the chain won't like that. And I've just always had this, uh, been drawn to that sense of independence, um, that no one should tell me what to do. And I think that that's, I have that all the way from, from childhood. And it's like, I just, I hate doing what people tell me what to do. I, I think that's probably true of most people to very, but a lot of people perhaps have they just come to terms with it that they just accept that like well some of the times you just have to do what you're being told to do and i I mean in many ways that's a good survival skill right like uh, there are plenty of people who don't have the this independence and this freedom to basically just um follow their guiding star all the time but uh i've been so fortunate to to end up in a situation and not even just fortunate perhaps even required i think the I would make a poor employee. I made a poor employee. I've worked for other people. I was not a great employee. And the reason why I was not a great employee, because I get these impulses to to make things better or to change things. And I kind of wasn't great at taking no for an answer. So I think that's that's kind of just some of those personality traits that people end up with. I don't know, either through genes or nurturing or, or whatever. I haven't traced the full of how it is for me but i've just come to the recognize uh recognition that that is how it is for me and trying to shove myself into another box um then that has not only been unsuccessful but the few times where i've tried it's made me miserable and i wouldn't have been able to do any of the things that i ended up doing if i had accepted that so in part um that refusing to to accept those normal constraints of most people in society was um, how I ended up here. But it could just as well have ended up the other way. I mean, the world is full of people who um, who want to be independent, who, who want to run their own things, and they fail. And, and maybe they end up in, a, in an even more miserable place. So I don't want to sort of put it on the spot that like, oh, well, if you just do that, if you just listen to yourself, <laughs> if you just do all these other things, you're guaranteed success because that's not how it works. Yeah, but I mean, it's the way you approach things and and how you break things down. I think that has led to your success. And you mentioned one thing about the impulses to have to to make things better. So I'm curious when, when you get something you're interested in and you, and you start scratching at something. I've heard you talk about that that you can't stop scratching that itch you have. You want to talk about that? Sure. Yeah, I think it's it it it's part curiosity when when I find a new field of endeavor, whether it's an entirely new field, let's say I pick up photography or I pick up race car driving. Um, it's just, it's so fascinating because anything that's worth um, pursuing is deep. It has layers and you can keep learning more and you can keep unpacking it. And once you've gone through that process a few times, you learn that there is a, a meta learning process, that there's a way to learn you can learn about how to learn. And once you've picked up those basics and, and 
those expectations for how that process goes, you can apply that over and over again. So by the time, for example, I stumble upon race car driving, I had already been through the process of learning how to learn several times. So I knew, for example, that you show up in a new domain, race car driving, there's going to be all these terms, there's all these technical terms of how race cars work, how they're set up, uh, what is grip, uh, the fr- uh, friction circle. There's all these concepts. And you have to accept that on day one, you're not going to understand them. Uh, you're going to ex- understand just a fraction of it. And and sometimes for some people, if they've ended up becoming really good at something, it's very hard for them to go back to being a beginner. And I've never really had a problem with that. I've never really had a problem with saying, I am utterly ignorant when it comes to this thing. Uh, I found it liberating, the fact that I, uh, for example, car driving, I show up, I don't know anything. I just got my driver's license like a couple years earlier. I really don't know anything. So it gives me permission to, to find the people who do know something, to figure out what it is that they know, and then to try to emulate that as best as I can until I internalized um, that process. So that uh, liberation that comes from adopting the beginner's mind and uh, being humble enough to realize that just because you're good at A, B, and Z doesn't mean you're good at D, E, and F. Um, I think that's one of the traps that highly skilled people are likely to fall into, that, that they think they're good at everything. No one is good at everything, and, and everyone has to learn. And the process of, of learning is really not that different, but there is a there's a method to it of how you pick it up and the expectations of at which pace you can pick it up, both on the positive and the negative end. And on the one hand, as I said, like showing up, accepting, okay, there's all these terms being thrown around. Like for the longest time, even with, with race car driving, the basics of what is understeer, what is oversteer wasn't, wasn't even totally clear to me. Like, I kind of knew what the terms were. And if I looked them up, I'd go like, oh yeah, that's right. But it took me a while until I actually sort of knew it in my in my bones and muscles um, and could, could react to it. But then on the other hand, that there's also these expectations in a lot of fields like, oh, first you must do this and, and then you would spend a year doing that and then you go another year doing this. And uh, that's not true either in many cases. You can go much faster than the standard curriculum uh, proposes that you do um, if you if you approach it in a certain way. I think the, um, a, a great essay by Derek Sivers that comes to mind is uh, there's no speed limit. He talks about it in, in how he learned some instrument and how he realized that what most people took two years and he, he could learn in a, in a few months if he just went about it in a, in a different way at a different pace. So I think it's just that realizing that learning itself is a, is a game. It's not just about what you're learning, but the learning process itself is something that you can master. And, and that it's fun to master it. And it's fun to go back and reset. Um, once you let go of the ego that tells you, oh, you have to be great at everything from day one. Yeah, no, Derek Sivers is someone who's come up multiple times on this podcast. His writing, there is a lot of great nuggets. One of those you uncovered there. I really want to deconstruct your learning process. And, and even just the little tidbit you brought up there about just being utterly ignorant as you approach a new thing. What else do you really value and find important when, when taking on a new challenge or a new skill? Sure. So there's a couple of different practices I, I found helpful. One of them is to 
break the whole thing down. Let's take race car driving, for example. To go fast around a whole track or whole circuit, there's 15 turns, maybe there's 20 turns. If you try to improve at all of those turns at the same time, um, that's very difficult. It's very difficult to, to keep that perception in mind. So what I find is breaking things down and focusing on smaller elements, even knowing that you have to learn the whole thing at, at some point, but you have to start somewhere too. And starting with a smaller segment of what you're trying to learn and what you're trying to figure out um, is a really good way to go about it. So I'll take, for example, one corner that I feel like this is the most valuable corner on this track where going faster will have the biggest impact on my lap time. I'm just going to focus on that. I know that there are things I'm not doing right on the other corners, but I can't deal with all that at the same time. The same thing goes for programming. That at times when I was learning learning programming, I just focus on this one pattern, not considering the fact that the whole program obviously has to work and it, it has to be have to be solid, but I can't have that that in my head at the same time. So trying to break down the tasks you have at hand, even when you know that the individual pieces you've broken it down to aren't actually, they're not sufficient, they're not enough, um, is still the best way that I've found of building up that expertise, that getting really good at that one element and then going like, okay, now, now I'm, I'm good here. I can I can move on and I can go for the next one. And then by the time I've done that 10 times, then I will have learned the whole thing at once. I, I find a lot of people when they try to learn, whether that's programming or whether it's race car driving or it's photography or any of these other things that I've been exposed to, they try to take way too big bites. They try to get way too good at way too much stuff at the same time. Photography, another great example. There's so many nuances of it just getting the basics down with uh with white balance uh or composition or depth of field these are all individual skills you have to learn to master the the whole idea of taking good pictures um so that decomposing uh or deconstructing approach to it i've, I've found to be really helpful because it's then also much easier to compare, right? So take photography, for example. You can look at a good picture. Most people can look at a good picture and they can go like, oh, that's a good picture. They don't necessarily know why it's a good picture. Is it because the composition is spot on? Is it because the, the color grading is just really uh, intense? What is it? But if you're focusing on one thing, um, like the color grading, for example, uh, it's much easier for you to look at good examples of of photography and then go like oh now i kind of understand like i'm building up my eye i can start seeing these elements i can start seeing white balance i can start seeing whether things are straight i can seeing um uh the rule of thirds i can start seeing all these elements and, and you kind of have to train your eye step by step in that regard do you start studying some of the best in the world in that particular field to try to learn quicker absolutely so that's another that's probably the second most important um, element that I found. Find whoever is doing it well and then emulate until you understand um, what it is that they're doing and why it is that they're doing. But in the beginning, you don't even have to understand that. You can simply just try to replicate what it is that they do, copy what it is that they do. Um, and then slowly, the understanding of why they do what they do will follow. But if you try to mm, sort of get to that understanding on day one, 
you're going to have a very hard time. For example, when, when I'm sharing a race car with a professional race car driver, a lot of these race car drivers are not even consciously of all the things that they're doing. Like, why do they go fast? For example, I would ask a bunch of my fellow professional race car drivers, where do you break for turn four? Like, do you break at the 200 mark, at the 100 mark? And they'd go like, I don't know. Uh, I break when when the car needs to stop. And so a lot of times, even the masters are not actually that helpful in um, explaining their own mastery. But if you try to emulate them and try to just do the same thing and you break it down so that, for example, at the, the breaking points in race car driving, I try to just emulate how do they push on the pedal. Most of them can't necessarily verbalize that that's how they do, but there's a there's a method to it. You have to have a really high initial spike of pressure, and then you have to sort of slowly bleed it off, such that when you look at the brake pressure on telemetry after the fact, it's this um, perfect triangle. So these are just, yeah, some of the techniques that I've used, and I've used fully uh, in multiple different domains, such that I've gotten to the point, like, I have this toolkit now, for learning stuff and it just makes it so much faster and so much less frustrating too because as, as i said um a lot of people once they've learned one thing they kind of forget what it's like to be a program or, or to be a beginner and if they're forced back into that beginner's world it's pretty frustrating both for the ego that thinks like i should be good at stuff but also just like i can't even i know what it is i'm supposed to do but it's very hard to do it um and and that can be frustrating until you just realize like hey this is the trajectory there's no one who hasn't gone through this path. Someone who's gotten really good at something without having been very frustrated along the way. Yeah, you mentioned a lot of times they're not even conscious for some of these meta skills. And I'm wondering, is that just pattern recognition now at this point where you've done so many of these different things that it's just automatic for you and you're not even realizing what you're doing a lot of the times? I do try to actually realize what it is that I'm doing because I found <laughs> that enumerating the different techniques means that I can employ them more purposefully. That doesn't mean you, you have to be aware of this. Clearly, there are lots of people, as we just said, that have gotten very good at different things by just intuitively following these same techniques without being able to describe them. But I found that there's just an, it's interesting in itself, the fact that there is a way of learning about learning that can make you more effective at learning things and learning them better, faster. Um, that just, I found that in itself fascinating. So learning about learning, um, feels like it's one of those skills and awarenesses that's just going to pay off again and again, as I try to dive into different things. Yeah. When you're diving into something new, uh, I'm thinking a lot about failure and, and how do you know when to completely quit and move on and when to really dig deeper and knowing there could be greatness at, at the end of this failure. So for me, I set very relative goals. Um, when I started driving race cars, for example, I didn't have any illusions that I was going to be the fastest person in the world uh, after I'd been driving for a year. But I want to be the fastest person at our local track at this one part of the track. So, so that's sort of, you set an immediate goal that's within reach, not too far, but not too close either. You have to stretch to reach it. And then... What is failure in that regard? If, if, if you put the, the object of your desire so close at hand, it, it's, it's pretty easy to reach it, right? A lot of times, failure is simply just a mismatch of expectations. Hmm. That if you're 
expectation is, oh, I'm going to go out and win my first race. And you don't do that, well, you're a failure, but only in your own eyes. There's no objective definition of that. You could just as well have set your goal to be, I just want to complete the race, or I want to do better than I did last race, or I want to finish in the top 10, or um, or any of these, or I want to beat this other person that I think I'm on par with in terms of skill. And I still do that to this day, even as I drive uh, at kind of some of the most prestigious races in the world. I always set my aspirations to something that's within reach. I'm never going to go like, oh, I'm a failure if we don't win. I'm a failure if I'm not the fastest person on track. No, I want to be faster than my peer group. I want to be consistent in terms of my own performance, just evaluating myself against myself. And then all of a sudden, all these things that other people perhaps would have conceived of as failures, they're not really failures. They're they're failure of, of expectation setting. And I think that that is an I've gotten better at. And I've started to recognize just how important that is for your motivation, how easy it is to give up on something if if you perceive yourself as failing all the time, you just change your definition of failure and all of a sudden, hey, I'm winning now. Speaking of motivation and winning, what's it like in your head when you win Le Mans? It's funny because I won 24 hours of Le Mans with Aston Martin in 2014. And I wasn't actually that thrilled with my own personal performance. <laughs> I mean, I was I was happy that we won and that was great. I mean, the it was a race I wanted to win, but in no way, shape, or form was that one of the highlights of my racing career in terms of my own personal contribution, which I'll say in, in most cases is more important. I've had all sorts of races where I've been intensely proud of my contribution, and then we ended, ended up fifth. Or maybe we didn't even finish, and yet still I would look back upon that race and go like, man, that was a great race because I set my expectations uh, and aspirations on my own personal contribution, my own personal factor in this, not just whether we win or we don't win. Because especially if you take a thing like race car driving, and it's true in most team sports or things that are not just of your own mind, there are all these other factors that are outside of your control. The car could break down, your teammate could make a mistake, there could be trouble on a pit stop. There's all these other things. And if you're beating yourself up over things that are outside of your control, that's just dumb. Use that's one of the uh, key principles I took away from learning about the Stoics. Really being able to um, specify this idea that you should worry about the things that are within your control and worry not about the things that are not within your control. And stressing or disappointed about things that are without or outside of your control it's just a futile act that's only going to lead to aggravation that doesn't lead anywhere versus if you focus on your own contribution and the things that are within your control, then that energy at least goes somewhere where you have to do something about it. So that's been my focus um, in race car driving, in programming, in all sorts of things. Focus on my own personal contribution and my own personal um, skills and then just set some realistic expectations that uh, I'll work with that. And then if I set expectations that are too far-fetched, I'll just adjust them. Part of the, the game of expectations is to treat them as, as sort of guidelines for learning. 
this is a tool. Expectations is a tool. And if the way you're holding that tool is hurting you, you're holding it wrong. Set the new expectations. Same goes for business too. Um, for We just published a new book called It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work. And one of the chapters in that book is called Our Goal is No Goals. This idea that a lot of people in business, they end up being disappointed with their success because it didn't meet some arbitrary goal that they had set. Oh, I want to be a $100 million business. Well, if you don't reach that and you, quote unquote, only end up being a $50 million business, are you now a failure? Lots of people look at it as a failure. The stock market constantly gauges all sorts of wonderful companies as a failure because they didn't live up to expectations. And don't get trapped in that for your own life has been my conclusion that I have the power to set my own expectations. I have the power to set my own goals. And in many cases, the right answer is no goals. That simply to do my very best is going to be just fine. Yeah, you mentioned controlling what you can control, and I love that approach. And I want to dive more to your creative side. And I, I know you're infamous for for setting long stretches of uninterrupted time. Where do you find the value in that? So what I've found for creative endeavors, whether that's writing, whether that's programming, whether it's any of these other pursuits, is that uh, even race groups, um, unless I get these long stretches of uninterrupted time, I can't dive deep. I can't get into the flow state, that magical place where you kind of lose sense of time and space and you're just making wonderful progress. If my day is constantly sliced up into these tiny little work moments, oh, you get 15 minutes here, you get 45 minutes there, you get an hour and 20 there, because what? You have meetings, because you have all sorts of other interruptions that disturb your day. I, I can't make the kind of progress that I want to make, the kind of progress that's truly satisfying, the kind of breakthroughs and deep lives that bring that core satisfaction to the work. And then what I'm doing, like uh, the same thing with, with the learning part, right? Like I'm, I'm never going to advance if I don't give myself the space and the environment to do so. And by far the most powerful um, environmental set up to do that is to just have these long stretches of uninterrupted time where you can really dive deep, where you can really focus and get to the bottom of things. So when you're setting up these long stretches of time, do you pick particular days during the week or are there certain hour blocks every day you set aside for yourself? I try to make sure that I have the afternoons off. And when I mean off, I mean dedicated to just this kind of work that I do the bulk of my interruption driven work in the morning. Uh, and then sometimes when I can't do that, when I know I have interruptions, meetings, interviews, podcasts, um, <laughs> later in the day, I'll just go like, that day is, is just off the record. Or, I'm, I'm not going to try to force that day into being um, a conduit for creative work because that's just going to lead to frustration. So I just write the day off and then I do other things. There's all sorts of other tasks that also need to be done, uh, inputs that I need to give or things that I need to review that do not require this level of focus and dedication and stretches of uninterrupted time. And then let me do some of that work when I can't do the other work anyway. Yeah, it was funny when when we were going to do this interview, I felt like a great hindrance to you because I knew it was a day you weren't producing great work. And the only way I was justifying it is the value you're going to bring to the listeners of this. And I know those stretches of time. <laughs> Sorry, what was it's that? It's funny because the, the way we set it up was um, 
like I've done a bunch of uh, podcast interviews lately, and I was kind of getting to the tail end of, of when I'm going to put a stop to it. But this week, this entire week, I had something lined up every day except today. And I was like, just about having uninterrupted or, or long stretches of uninterrupted time on a single day. I kind of need several days to really get into a good groove where I'm making that kind of progress. So I knew this week was kind of shot anyway. So now is a good time to load up on all these other obligations that I wouldn't want. Like if I had a pristine week where it's like the calendar's blank, I have nothing else but the core work that I want to move forward on. If I didn't plop down some obligation in the middle of it, that's a poor choice. But if I have a week that's already full of these other obligations and pulls on my time, adding one more or one less doesn't really make a difference. Now I don't feel as bad, but uh, now, yeah, I, w- I want to dive into a few more of your habits then. And, and I want to compare both the physical and psychological habits you have kind of around diet, exercise, and then something you do a great deal of, which is negative visualization. So can, can you kind of break down maybe a great day, a great week, what that looks like to encapsulate all of those? Sure. So one of the that we've had at Basecamp since the beginning of the company was that we were not going to get the work done that we wanted done by simply trying to squeeze all the hours that were possible out of the week. A lot of people, when they start on new things, justify it to themselves, hey, this is the new thing, I'm an entrepreneur, blah, blah, blah. And then they end up working 60, 80, or even 100 hours a week. And they feel great about the sacrifice that they're doing for this glorious cause that they're involved with. I just thought that, that was stupid. Because I've tried to work like that, and I know what my brain feels like at the 60th or the 80th hour, or even an all-nighter, and that brain feels like mush. It is not a brain that is going to produce insights and breakthroughs um, in the same way that a well-rested, well-fed, well-exercised brain is going to do. So instead of focusing my efforts on just getting more and more and more hours, I wanted to get the best quality hours that I could possibly get and then treat it as a pretty hard constraint that I was just going to work 40 hours or less per week, but that I could make those 40 hours count for way more than a lot of people make their 80 hours count or their 100 hours count, that the quality of the single hour was in some ways even easier to influence and to supercharge than just pouring more hours of it. One example is sleep. Um, There's been a lot of focus on sleep lately. Uh, Arianna Huffington has taken up the cause. There's a new book out called Why We Sleep. But even before this, I already knew that uh, I needed eight and a half, nine hours of sleep every night to be at my peak. And if I didn't get that, if I simply just skipped a single hour and say, well, I only got seven and a half hours, I could feel that every single waking hour would take a toll. What I've since learned is that that toll was not just about me. That's a general human trait, that the cognitive performance of just about everyone drops off surprisingly steeply as soon as the sleep deficit builds up. So you're just sleeping one hour too little every day. Most people need between eight and nine hours of sleep every day. Lots of people get less than that. Let's just say you're getting seven hours of uh, sleep every night. So that's an hour too little every day. You do that for a week straight, and now you have a sleep deficit of seven hours. Well, scientists have uh, researched what happens when someone have a seven-hour sleep deficit, and it's really not pretty. 
there's all sorts of advantages to being well-rested and the cognitive advantages are huge. So I thought, hey, if I just make the investment, well, that's kind of the kind way of saying it. I also just enjoy to sleep. <laughs> Some people don't like to sleep. Sleeping for me is a absolute bliss. So I love to sleep. But then I also got to see just how well it paid off. If I was going to work for eight hours and every single hour I got 15, 20% more performance out of those hours, it was like I got two extra hours um, every single day. So that seemed totally worth it. The same goes for, let's say, exercise. Being in um, reasonable shape has a direct impact on your cognitive abilities. So investing a few hours every week to work out and stay in shape, it seemed totally worth it. Again, I'm trying to make sure that every one of the hours that I actually work is is the best hour it can possibly be. Same thing with diet. Um, same thing as I've recently discovered with, with other environmental factors like air quality. There's a lot of people who end up working in offices or homes that have very poor air quality. And I've been diving into the research on that. And it's absolutely atrocious what happens to your uh, cognitive uh, abilities once, let's say, CO2 accumulation gets too high. It's very similar, actually, in many ways to sleep. Uh, if, if the CO2 concentration is in a room is too high, you just you start losing that sharpness. And that sharpness loss is very measurable, and scientists have measured this. And I went like, you know what? I can do something about that, too. So I can set all my environmental factors up in such a way that my hours really count, um, or, or not even just really count, that they're really good, that those hours are really good and I'm sharp and alert and focused and creative in those hours, and then making sure that those hours connect, as we talked about, making sure that I get three or four of them just in a stretch such that I can do the best work that I could possibly do. What about how you implement negative visualization to give you some more of those cognitive benefits? Sure. So negative visualization is a technique out of the Stoics again. And it's this idea of preparing yourself for adversity. Adversity is going to happen. Life is full of setbacks and challenges. And if you face those challenges completely unprepared, they can be devastating. So if you invest some time in anticipating that life is not going to always pan out as you hoped it, you won't be as disappointed or surprised when it doesn't turn out like you hope to. So for vis negative visualization, one of the areas of focus I have is on the company itself. So I've been running Basecamp with Jason for about 15 years, and that's just the part of it. I've worked with him several years before that. We've had a really good run. A lot of people get nervous and protective when they have something like that, or I really got to make sure that like competitors don't put us out of business or, or all these other things you can stress out about where you can't really do it so much about it. As we talked about what's inside of your control, what a competitor does, it doesn't do is not really inside of your control. So why are you stressing about it so much? Anyway, that's, that's an aside, but this idea that I'm prepared that Basecamp could blow up tomorrow. I'm prepared that we could go out of business tomorrow and, I prepared in, in, in all sorts of ways of, of, by reflecting on the time that we've had. I've had these 15 glorious years building wonderful products that I really believed in, 
alongside wonderful co-workers, some of the best people I've, I've ever worked with. Um, I've worked with here at Basecamp. And w- what a wonderful time that was. What a grief over the fact that that might come to an end. Um, so I feel like I'm, in, I'm well prepared for... Um, the common odds, like the common odds are that most businesses go out of business eventually. And that that shouldn't be a devastating setback if you prepare for the fact and if you've enjoyed yourself along the way. And that's the other reason why we've treated Basecamp as a present uh, activity in the sense that like we're not just working for the future. Yes, we're building new products or features or whatever for the future but we're also focusing on making sure that every day today is a good day every day today is a sustainable healthy joyous day there's a lot of people who are so invested in the future that they end up deferring their life oh well i'm just going to do this shitty work right now uh exhaust myself to the brink of collapse because then in 10 years it'll really be worth it and i can retire and i can sit back and i can enjoy my mojito on the beach and you know what? Even that supposed paradise is very rarely paradise for the kind of people who go through it. That we have the wrong idea of what happiness is. That for most people, happiness is doing, for most entrepreneurs at least. Happiness is the process, it's the journey. So setting yourself up to have a great journey rather than just suffering through a miserable journey because you're so excited to get to the destination – I think it's the wrong way to go about it. Yes, no, that's just such a refreshing approach. David, you have a couple more minutes. I'm just going to knock out a few more of you're good with that. Yep, shoot. Awesome, thanks so much. So one thing that you're great at is is clearing up the free space in your brain. And, and you mentioned how many brain cycles you have in a day. You only, you're limited to it. So what are certain things that you're doing to kind of clear, clear up more of that free space in the brain? Um, some of it is to consider the fact that I have a lot of different interests and I do a lot of different things um, as we've talked about, but I don't do them all at the same time. I'm not trying to, within a single week, uh, juggle photography and race car driving and writing a book or writing code and running the company. I try to do things more serially in that when I go race car driving, for example, it'll be maybe four days, long weekend. That's what I do. So that's when race car driving gets my time and my attention. Then when the race is over and I come back home, I don't really think about race cars at all until the next time I go out. So I try to really um, separate my time out in such a way that I focus on on mainly one thing at the time. When we were writing the book, for example, um, in the in the spring of this year, I didn't do a whole lot of programming. I didn't do a whole lot of basically any other things because uh, it wasn't about just putting more stuff on my plate. Oh, let's also write a book on top of everything else that we do at the same time. That is a recipe for stress and burnout and poor work product, in my opinion. It's much better to say, um, I'm going to take some of all this the stuff that I'm doing, and I'm going to put it on the back burner for a while, and I'll come back to it. It's not like I won't ever come back to writing code. When we're done with this book and we finish the manuscript and we've handed it over to the publisher, that process is over. And I can go back to, to writing code again. Um, so that's really helped me uh, focus to just think, do you know what? I don't have to do it all at once. And I can just do it one thing at a time and give it my full attention when I'm doing it. And then 
I, I can put it back in the box. Yeah, I'm going to have to go back and listen to that part from time to time because I'm guilty of, of trying to accomplish too many things at one time instead of having that narrow focus on one and really accomplishing that one task. Another thing you do a great job of is the 80-20 principle and, and how you're able to extract 80% of the value with only 20% of the effort. How do you go about that? Yeah, that's a great point. I, that's one of those points I always bring up when people are like, oh, we need to work more hours. We need to work more hours. I don't. You just need less bullshit. And there's so... <laughs> much bullshit there's so much work that people do every single day that does not need to be done and so many responses and and whatever and so many interactions that you have you just don't need to do um and a lot of that is is kind of reserving your effort to to only applying it when it really counts and being more discriminative in where you invest and sometimes saying you know what the right answer to this question right here is to do nothing let's just wait it out Let's just see where it goes. Um, and then I can focus all my energy on on something else. But I, I find that there are a lot of people who feel obligated to put in 100%, do the very best at every single thing that they do. I mean, I, there's something admirable in that. I think it's just terribly inefficient. So many things, both in business and, and elsewhere, does not need to be perfect. It doesn't even need to be good. It just needs to be done. There are a few things then that need to be good and, and even fewer things that then need to be perfect. But if you go into every single task with the intention that like I'm going to do the best possible job, like, it's a very small list of things you can either get done or you can burn yourself out trying to do too many things at that level of quality. Um, so getting comfortable with doing a average job at Perhaps even the majority of the things that you do that don't really fall into this bucket of of truly mattering is a skill that I take extremely seriously. Um, simply such that I can create that space to when it really counts. I now I I have the space to dig in and give it my all because I haven't spent my all on all these mm -hmm. other things that didn't count. That could have been the most valuable three minutes in this entire call. I know your time's valuable. I'm the new father of a three-month-old son. I know you take your parenting really seriously and you do some interesting thing. Any recommendations just for myself? I think that is another one-hour podcast to dive into parenting, <laughs> I'd say. Um, I'll give you some book recommendations instead of things that That's have perfect. influenced me on parenting. Um, one is called Punished by Reward by Alfie Cohen. And Alfie Cohen has another great book that's called uh, Myth of the Spoiled Child. And both of these books revolve around the idea that um, trying to control kids um, towards your ends is often not a good idea. That there's a lot of parents and teachers and other adults in kids' lives who are really focused on obedience above most other things. And that's a really damaging perspective to have, in my opinion, and the opinion of Alfie Cohen and a bunch of other researchers on child development and, and, and autonomy, that kids are just little people and they need autonomy just as much as, as adults do. And if you deny them the chance of that autonomy on anything below the, okay, if you do this, you're going to kill yourself or seriously hurt yourself, um, you're doing both your Yourself and your your kid a great disservice. Um, so anyway, I checked those two uh, two books out. That they were really inspirational for me, not just in parenting, but a general outlook on how to deal with 
people, whether they're six years old or five years old or 30 years old. No, I appreciate that. And and DHH, you've been way too kind with your time today. I've extracted a lot of value out of you for the year. So I'm glad the listeners finally get to hear you on the podcast. What's next for you? Where can the listeners best stay connected with you? I am uh, somewhat reluctantly, perhaps still on Twitter (laughs) and that as a megaphone for ranting and raving about different things. At DHH. I'm also for the visually inclined on Instagram at DHH79. And then we still have our blog that we've been running for 20 years at the company. It's called signalvnoise.com, where we work on new ideas and, and publish the thoughts that end up in books years later. So that's a good place to follow, even if it's been a little quiet lately as, uh, as we're just coming over the hurdle of publishing a new book. And then finally, of course, I'll just plug the book one more time. It's called It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work. And it really encapsulates a lot of the themes that we've been talking about here in terms of setting reasonable expectations and, and using that approach to, to guide yourself. Yep, we'll be sure to have all that linked up in the show notes. But once again, David, I can't thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. Thank you so much for having me. This is a blast. If you're listening to this podcast, there's a good chance that your physical fitness is one of the most important aspects of your life. So why do you keep wearing those old workout shorts that are falling apart? Or even worse, when you're at the gym and something smells a little ripe? If that's the case, it's time to turn in those old shorts for a new pair of 10,000 shorts. 10,000 makes it super simple to purchase your new favorite workout apparel. My new favorite short is their distance short, which is super comfortable, lightweight, and perfect for all of my fitness goals. I can say without a doubt that 10,000 shorts are the most comfortable workout shorts I've ever worn. Like myself, 10,000 is obsessed with nailing the fit with the highest quality materials and construction. For the listeners of What Got You There, 10,000 is offering 20% off your first order of shorts. Yes, that's 20% off. This is just in time to purchase the perfect holiday gift for your loved one or even treat yourself to a new wardrobe for the New Year's goals. When you check out, make sure you request their one-in-one-out kit. They do this super cool thing when you can send in your old gear you have for recycling and you'll get 10% off your next order. Head to www.10,000.cc forward slash WGYT to receive 20% off your order. And if for some reason you don't love them, they have your back with free shipping, free exchanges, and free returns. A few months ago, my body was experiencing a ton of pain, and that's when my friend and former podcast guest, Noah Olson, turned me on to Pure Spectrum CBD. Their CBD products have been tremendous in relieving a lot of the pain in my body. Their products are pure because everything they make is tested every time for quality, consistency, and efficiency. They're 100% organic, third-party tested. There's a 100% guarantee, and they're THC-free. If you want to receive 10% off the entire site, head to PureSpectrumCBD.com and enter code WGYT. That's 10% off the entire website at PureSpectrumCBD.com with code WGYT. For the What Got You There listeners who love to travel and want to see the world, listen up. We've teamed up with Globekick, who make it affordable to enjoy peak life experiences with like-minded people from around the world. Globekick expertly designs, curates, and scouts global adventures for you to join. 
Each trip lasts one week and is designed to balance their unique blend of adventure, culture immersion, and relaxation. Globekick has some epic adventures planned, such as cage diving with great white sharks in Cape Town, South Africa, dog sledding and northern light chasing in Norway, and to see the rest, head to globekick.com. If you want to travel the world with your kind of people and not break the bank, then make sure to stop at globekick.com and enter code WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.